everybody and welcome to the Empathy Podcast. My name's Leanne Butterworth and today we're talking about empathy and grief with Tiffany Bartlett. So Tiffany lost her husband four months ago and I'm so pleased that she's chosen to talk to me today. I found Tiffany on TikTok where she's really trying to get the conversation happening around her experience of grief, how to communicate with those who are grieving to make them feel safe and loved and so that our words and actions don't actually make them feel worse. If today's podcast does bring up any emotions for you, I know that it did for me and Tiff. Please make sure you reach out to someone who is loving, who can support you. My name's Leanne Butterworth. This is the Empathy Podcast. Let's get into it. Welcome, Tiffany. Thank you. Yeah, TikTok's amazing. Um, the grief that I am unfortunately particularly intimately involved with is I'm a widow at 30. I lost my husband Jared four months ago today. Um, I woke up next to him having a seizure in bed and the paramedics could not revive him. Oh, and it's first of all, I understand that people's intentions are good, but that's not good enough to just say, well, we meant well, um, that doesn't fly anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when we know better, we do better. So in order to know better, we have to have these conversations and I have to be honest about when people say things and how they make me feel. Yeah. The intentions are always good, especially around grief. But when someone tells me, um, hours after my husband passed away, well, you know, life just isn't there. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm oh. highly aware of that. Um, or wow. that, you know, God or the universe or whomever you think is running the show had better plans. Yeah. Yeah. No. So let's, let's dig into some stuff today. Now, anything, like I've said, anything, if I get it wrong, call me out. If there's anything that you don't want to say or makes you uncomfortable, this is this is all yours. But one thing I do want to get out there early on is when we talk about empathy. Now I have a whole business teaching people how to be empathy empathetic, sorry. I've got a course on empathy, how to write emails with empathy, how to not be a dick. Um and one of the things I think gets confused a lot is sympathy versus empathy. Now the definition of sympathy is you see someone else's pain as something to be alleviated. So you go into helper mode or you try and make it better or you try and make it go away. That's sympathy. Empathy is, and compassionate empathy, is the ability to share and understand the feelings of another person and respond appropriately. So it's not just enough to share and understand their feelings. You must respond appropriately because like Tiff just said, we can't hear your intentions. So I think some of the misunderstanding around empathy is you have to have been through it and that's not true. You have to understand that the feelings of that other person, if you know nothing else about them, the feelings of that other person are to be heard, valued, visible and important. That's the feeling in the very first instance that you are trying to connect with. They are vulnerable and your job is to make them feel heard, valued, 
visible, important through your words and your actions. Your job is not to fix. Your job is not to make it go away. So I think that piece in and of itself will help us frame this discussion. And that's a really good point because there's nothing anyone can say or do that is going to fix the fact that my husband is no longer here. There isn't any one thing that you're going to say that's going to make me go, gosh, that felt, you know, I'm all better now. Um, My grief with this loss of of mine, I'm going to have this for the rest of my life. It is a part of me and it's something that I will deal with forever. It is something that I've likened more to a chronic condition. People think about grief and the stages of grief and they think at some point it's done, right? You're over it. Uh, It's more like a chronic condition that will occasionally have flare-ups. At first, the diagnosis is devastating and you can't walk or talk or think or eat. And over time, you learn how to live with your grief. Uh, But it makes people extremely uncomfortable. My husband's only 33 years old. Yeah. Um, It was sudden and tragic to lose him. So I am aware that it makes people uncomfortable. I'm aware that me being upright and walking and talking and being able to crack jokes four months out makes people uncomfortable. They don't understand. And that's okay. We are here to talk about it. Why do you think it makes people uncomfortable? I think it makes people uncomfortable because we don't talk about it. The only guarantee we have in life, and this isn't to be pessimistic, I'm a fairly optimistic person, um, but the only guarantee that we have in life is that it will end. So with death being our only guarantee, it's something we don't talk about. Even my husband and I went through pre-marriage counseling with um, my Methodist pastor, right? We talked about money and, you know, meshing of, of in-laws and how to set boundaries with that. We never talked about planning for death. Yeah. Even in a pre-marriage counseling setting where it's till death do us part. So the intention is you're with this person until they die. We talked about how to avoid divorce and talking things out. We never talked about death, even in this very practical setting. And it's very uncommon to lose a spouse so early. And I think it makes people very aware of their own mortality. I've had a lot of people tell me they have no idea how I'm doing it. They wouldn't be able to function if they lost their spouse. And I'm like, this is, you think this is that I'm what wearing it well? I don't have a choice. If I don't get out of bed, my dog will pee in her kennel. Like I've got to get out of bed and take care of my dog. Um, But I think it makes people uncomfortable because we don't talk about it. It's a taboo subject. Do you think also it's because it would mean people have to self-reflect. Yeah. They would have to look at not only their own mortality, but they would have to look at a deeper emotional level of, well, how do I react to big emotions? How do I react to things that I'm unsure about? Do I react with defensiveness? Do I react with dismissal? Do I react with anger? Do I react with fear? Do you think, like, have you seen people actually start to self-reflect in their conversations with you? Yes. People who have been open with having these conversations. So I 
I used to be much more closed down, very private about my own feelings. And I realized as I'm opening up and as I'm honest about if something hurt me, people are more open to having these conversations in general. Um, I've had a few friends, yes, just be very honest with me. And they've said, look, um, I know that I'm not going to say the right thing. And I am sorry if what I say hurts you. Um, I don't know what I'm doing here. And I'm like, you know what? That's okay. Oh, oh that's a I, beautiful way to open. That is a beautiful way to co- come about it. And this was from a friend of mine who is very religious. Her Her religion is very important to her. And she didn't come at me with God has better plans or just trust in the, you know, everything happens for a reason. Um, those are things that aren't helpful. So she approached it from a very beautiful place where it was really about me and my pain and not about her feeling like she needs to say something or that she has to be perfect or that she has to put me back together. Yeah. Cause there's nothing she's, she can say, but coming at it from that perspective, just saying, look, I know I'm going to mess this up and just please let me know if I accidentally hurt you in any way. Um, and she actually, ha- she really hasn't. Um, yeah. And she, even opening with that, I know she's a safe place to go because these are extremely large emotions, right? We, as a society, we're light and breezy, right? If it's not fun or if it's not easy or if it doesn't click right away, we're kind of like, ooh, don't like that. I'm going to just put that to the side. Um, even with the emotions I felt personally, I didn't know that I could feel so many big emotions all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And I know I can understand why that is scary for people because these are big emotions. These are not for the faint of heart is what I've said. Um, and so there are some people who have kept a bit more of a distance with me during this time. And that's, you know what, if they can't handle these big emotions, I almost prefer that. Yeah. If they're not willing to do that inner reflection um, in order to be truly empathetic and help me during my the worst time of my life, I'd rather they take a step back. Yeah. Yeah. Because what is, I mean, what is it that you've just said if they're not willing to sort of step up and help you? Firstly, how are you? Um, I took a shower at 5 p.m. today. Okay. I was in my pajamas up until then. It is um, a moment-by-moment thing. Um, There is still so much that I need to do. I know that I need to take care of myself. And there are times where I have a couple of maybe really solid days where I feel like I have a handle on things. um, And then something will come up that's unexpected. I got a letter. My husband was a donor. And I got a letter from one of the women who received his donations and it was beautiful and lovely. And I was overwhelmed with joy and extreme sadness and anger a little, you know? And so I, I, I couldn't function in that moment. And so even though I'd been able to cook myself dinner and go to the grocery store and I'd been working out and really taking care of myself, when that came up, I felt like I took 20 steps back. And I couldn't even get up off the floor to boil water for dinner. And so I had a friend, I reached out to her and I told her through sobs what was happening in her pajamas. She came over. 
I was still on my floor. She has a key to my apartment and she boiled water and she made noodles for me on a work night. This woman runs a giant hospital, multi-million dollar hospital. And she came over in her pajamas and she made me dinner. Oh, because, wow. So I know that we're going to talk about when people get it wrong. Yes. And what the impact of that is. But what is it that when people get it right, what does that do? It lets me breathe a little bit easier. Every breath I've taken since they told me they couldn't revive him has been painful. Yeah. And when someone like that gets it right, or my other friend who led with that, I know I'm going to get it wrong. Yeah. It just eases the constriction around my heart just a little bit. And I can kind of take a deep breath and I can just be for a moment and I can just feel my feelings because everything hurts all the time. I have no other way of explaining it. Every moment of every day is altered without Jared. He, I, we, we must've communicated like 10 or 15 times a day, a funny meme, a, a joke. Hey, I saw this at the store and it made me think of you. I can't wait to see you or just Aww. every, you know, there, there were a lot of communication between yeah. him and I. And so yeah. One of the jokes I make is like, now it's dead silent. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but he was such a jokester and yeah. he made me laugh constantly in that deep from your soul laugh. Yeah. And one day I decided I was tired of just hurting and of just crying all the time and nobody was going to make any jokes because they're scared. <laughs> Oh yeah. So nobody's going to make any jokes. So it's up to me to make these jokes. It's up to me to make myself laugh. And if I can kind of lead by example, and if I can show people that it's okay to make jokes, then maybe I can start laughing again. And that's the first step in my mind for me to being able to live with this grief. Cause he was such a jokester. Halloween's his favorite holiday. Uh, he played jokes on me all the time, not anything crude, you know, there wasn't pie in the face, but just yeah, yeah. he was a jokester. And so when people get it right, I just, I feel like I can breathe a little bit yeah. and I feel loved and valued and I feel heard and I feel understood because yeah. this is such a lonely journey. My partner is gone. The person I dedicated 10 years of my life to is gone. And that's extremely lonely. Yeah. I go to bed at night. He's not there. There's nobody yeah. asking when I'm going to come home or if I need anything from the store. All yeah. those things that we take for granted. Yeah. Nobody's asking me these questions anymore. So when people get it right, it changes my entire my entire day, sometimes my entire week. It just yeah. it eases the pain. Yeah. When they get it right. And I know I say like there's nothing that anybody can do to fix me or to make it better. And there's a lot of ways that that's right. They can't bring Jared back, no. but they can make it less hard. <laughs> yeah. They can make me feel less alone. Yeah. When people get it wrong, I feel angry and isolated and not heard Yeah, and not seen. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And it's like, I mean, the, the vision that I've got in my mind is we know that we can't make it 
better. We know that we can't fix it. Like the work has to be yours. We can't do the work for you, the self-care, all that sort of stuff. But it's like providing that scaffolding yes. of going, okay, we, we got you. We got you. Okay, you're going this way, we got you that way. We got You're going this way, we got you that way. Yes. Like you don't have to be alone in this. You don't have to go through it alone. So then what in your mind is the difference between your friend who came and made the noodles or somebody who says, reach out if you need me? Is there a difference? Because people... I mean, if we talk about intentions for a second, we're going to assume that their intentions are good. We're going to assume that they want you to be better, that they want to make it go away, that, um, I mean, my assumption is that people like to keep an emotional distance. So if we, and they, if we look at people's behavior from a perspective of fear and insecurity, and I mean, to me, that often is the intention is I want to be there for you, but I want to protect myself in it. And that's a big part of empathy is not losing yourself. I don't want you to go down the hole with me. I want you to be my scaffolding. So what is the difference between making the noodles and being proactive in that sense and saying, call me if you need me? I don't know what it is that I need per se. I also personally have a fear of overburdening people with how heavy this is. I'm aware that it's very heavy. I'm aware that there is such a thing as grief fatigue, that if I lean too much on one person, they're going to burn out. I'm also aware that at 30, most of our friends have wives and jobs and careers and children, and I don't want to be a burden to them. So I'm going to... If, if you're waiting for me to tell you that I need something, I'm probably not going to do that. One, I don't necessarily know what it is that I need. I've never been a widow before. I've never lost my husband before. I don't know what the next steps are or what they look like. And for me, I lost my husband. I moved back home to Texas, so I lost our home. Um, I moved in with my in-laws for the first month, so I lost my independence. Um I didn't have my car for a couple of weeks because it was still in Washington. So I, I lost my ability to move around. I, I was utterly overwhelmed by how much things had changed. And so many people said, just call me if you need me. Well, I don't know what I need. Um, I'm overwhelmed with all the things that I know that I need to do, but I don't know what you can help me with. I don't know what your strengths are or what your comfort level is. So I don't also want to ask too much of you and then have you say no. And then that feels like a rejection. Yeah. And I can't take rejection right now. (laughs) Yeah. And you don't want to add guilt to your, to your suitcase of stuff that you're carrying as well. Right. So one of the things that I've learned in this process is I had a, I had a high school classmate of mine get into a terrible motorcycle wreck Uh, He was in the hospital for several days and he has a dog, right? And there were so many people saying, what can I do? How can I help you? And I'm like, he's laid up in a hospital. He doesn't know. So I reached out and I was very specific with what I felt like I could offer. He has a dog. I've been in the veterinary industry. I said, hey, we'll call him Sam. Sam, does somebody have your dog? If not, I am capable of picking him up and getting him to a boarding facility and, and making sure he's taken care of while you're in the hospital. So I was very specific with what my cap- capabilities were, my availability, and what I was comfortable doing. 
he already had that part taken care of. So all he had to do was say, no, we've got it covered. Thank you. Yeah. So it takes the pressure off of him to think of how you can help him. Yeah. Because saying yes, please. Yeah. Yes. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, And again, for the person that is offering, like you just said, that takes a level of self-awareness of boundaries to say, hey, this is what I've got. Can I, can, will this help you? And like your friend who said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't want to get it wrong, but I'm here. Yeah. That's, that's giving. That's together. That is, that is understanding that your humanity and your vulnerability and not adding pressure to you. Right. There's so many pressures from so many uh, other people. In my specific case, my husband is survived by all of his parents. Okay. They're divorced and remarried. So that's four parents. He's got, he has sisters. He's survived by grandparents. And there's all of this pressure on me to make all of these decisions very, very quickly. Yeah. And there is such a thing as decision fatigue. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I can't, I'm going to butcher this framework of the study, but essentially they did a study on federal judges and their leniency through the course of the day and how they're more lenient in the morning and they become less lenient throughout the morning. And then it peaks up a little bit again after lunch, but it's never as high as initially it is in the morning. And then by the end of the day, their leniency um, is basically almost nothing. Gotcha. And so that was just one example of decision fatigue. And I see it all the time with um, women in veterinary medicine, doctors um, specifically, but hospital administrators who just, they have to make all of these big decisions all of the time and they get tired. And that's what I was experiencing. So me having to call you and tell you what it is I need from you is another decision I have to make and, and strategize and execute. And I'm, my brain doesn't work. Even four months later, I tried to put the peanut butter in the dishwasher. That's oh, not sick. where the peanut butter goes. And this is four months out. This is with me having done a lot of work with my therapist and really taking the time to dig in and just feel my feelings, including a little bit of anger. And I'm still putting peanut butter in the dishwasher. So I'm still, my brain's still not at the capacity to fully function like I was June 28th before I lost him. Yeah. And so that puts the pressure on me to make decisions and I'm not in a place to make really good ones right now. Are you working? Like, have you got support around you? Are you got, have you got networks around you? Uh, The reason I stayed in Texas instead of going back to Washington state is because this is where our families and our friends are. This is where we met. Um, I went back to work. I started a new job. It was one that I had applied for prior to Jared passing away. And that was six weeks after he passed away. And I realized pretty quickly it was not, I was not able to, to function at the capacity I needed to. It was a new position. I was working from home. I was alone 98% of the time. COVID is real. Um, So going out and being with people is hard, but being alone and a lot of that job involved a lot of rejection over the phone and I couldn't handle it. It wasn't good for me. So I had to leave that job. So I am not working right now, um, but I have the support of friends and family. Um, I moved out of my in-laws house, but I moved into an apartment three miles down the road. 
<laughs> for the time being, it's what I need. I need to be close to them, but I need to have my own space. <laughs> yeah. 30 yeah. and living with your in-laws isn't really something you ever want to do. No, when they're grieving as well. Like, and it they was are a pros and cons. It was like, great because my, my bonus mother-in-law would force me out of bed at dinner time when I didn't get out of bed all day. And I had someone that would take care of Persephone so that I didn't feel like a terrible dog mom. Yeah. Um, but after a month, I was like, okay, I need to be able to have a glass of whiskey on my bed stand. Like I need to have a little bit more freedom to do those things. And so yeah, being there for the first couple of weeks was really beneficial for me and for them. Uh, but yes, they are also grieving the loss of their son and <sighs> grief as a competition is not, nobody wins. <laughs> and even when you win, you lose. Yeah. It's, it's hard. Yeah. 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 And so let's talk about some of the things that people can do better. Okay. So if we talk about, firstly, what is the impact on you? Because people have to understand that they're, we can't hear your intentions. We can hear your words right. and your actions. And words and actions have consequences. Now, they can be good. They can be bad. What is it that are the consequences for you personally? And again, like we said before, like everybody's experiences of grief are very, very different. We are only talking about you, your experience, and that's what I'm 100% interested in. What are the consequences of people getting this wrong? It feels very isolating. Um, I'm already feeling very much alone in this process even though I'm surrounded by people. So when people get it wrong, it severs any feeling of understanding. I feel unseen. I feel not understood. And depending on what it is, it can make me angry. It can make me sad. It can harm the relationship that I'm having with this person because in my most vulnerable and exposed time, you're not seeing me and you're hurting me. Yeah. 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 And that can make the it can make the process harder because yeah. I now know you're not a safe you're not a safe place. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes it harder then to open up to other people because you kind of get gun shy. Yes. Have you found that? How are you going to how are you going to react to me saying this? Yeah. Um it's one of the reasons I ended up over on TikTok. Um, right is because my in-laws and all of my husband's aunts and uncles and cousins are on my Facebook and my Instagram. And so now that's not a safe place for me to express myself or yeah. to make connections with other widows or widowers. Yeah. So yeah. it definitely makes you gun shy and it just causes more isolation and more loneliness because now I don't know you were a person that I expected to be a safe place and you're actually, you're not. Yeah. And so that's going to make me shy with people who I didn't expect to be a safe place. Yeah. Yeah. So what sort of things make people unsafe in in your mind? Because I mean, I've got a list of things that if they if it comes out of their mouth, I instantly go mm -hmm. like you've got 
because to me they've got issues and like we've said with fear and insecurity and wanting to make it better and that's not what I need and that doesn't make them a bad person it means that they don't gel with what it is that I need in that moment so when someone is dismissive of my pain or my process and they can be dismissive in ways that they don't realize they're being dismissive but God had a better plan God needed them more um Everything happens for a reason. Why Um, do you think people say that? It's self-soothing. I think it makes them feel better. They don't know what else to say. It's something that has been conditioned in them to say. And so when they're uncomfortable, they don't know what to do. They go on autopilot and they don't actually think about what it is they're saying. And it makes them feel better because they did a they did a good thing. They said a nice thing to the grieving widow. And so they can pat themselves on the back and then compartmentalize because that's uncomfortable and go on with their day. And there's comfort in knowing that everything happens for a reason and that he's in a better place. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Have you had anybody start a sentence with at least? (sighs) Yeah. Um, my husband and I struggled for many years to get pregnant. I have polycystic ovarian syndrome, which not impossible, but difficult to get pregnant. Mm. At least you don't have children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. How does that one punch you in the face? Oh, (laughs) um, Wow. Oh, that hurts on so many levels because people, uh, we, we weren't quiet about my, my PCOS. We were very public about our struggles with infertility yeah. again, because people feel like women especially feel like they're alone. Yeah. And I feel like if we talk about it, it's less taboo and you realize how many people in your life are going through it too. Um, so that one is a huge gut punch. And that came from someone within Jared's immediate family. Oh. Because so you, again, have the, you have the luxury of not working. You have the luxury of not yes. having to deal with small, like. Right. It's such a, you get to be selfish and focus on yourself. It's at least, <laughs> at least you have met the love of your life. There are so many people who go through life and never, never meet their person. So at least you got to have them even for such a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm sorry other people don't have standards and don't communicate with it. I don't know what to tell you. I'm sorry you hate your husband. I didn't hate mine. All that does is make me angry that the husband you hate is still alive and the husband I loved isn't. Um, And that's where a little bit of the anger and the resentment and that's wearing down our our relationship with each other because I know I was very fortunate to have a man like Jared. I was also very intentional in who I married. And knew that I wouldn't settle for someone who didn't treat me the way that I, I, I should be treated. Yeah. Um, so at least you didn't have kids. At least you met the love of your life. Um, yeah. Yeah. What about should and just? Oh. The doctors should have caught it. So my husband died of cardiomyopathy due to morbid obesity, which was complicated by obstructive sleep apnea. 
Okay. He had an event in October of 2019 that was a seizure. He was hospitalized for several days because he had no arrhythmia after the seizure. We did a full cardiac workup. He got a clean bill of health from the cardiologist. And we've been working with the neurologist and the sleep specialist ever since. So they should have caught his cardiomyopathy in October. Well, they didn't. And I was there for all of the scans and they said everything looked normal. He just had a follow-up visit with a primary care physician in May and everything checked out. I know we did everything we were supposed to do and I'm not mad at the doctors. So to say they should have caught it. Yeah. Like there's no one to blame for this. It's tragic and it's awful. And I wish there was someone to blame maybe, but there isn't, there's no one to blame. So they should have caught it. Doesn't help. Yeah. Um, do you think as well when people, because I know on TikTok you were reticent in or hesitant in saying why he died and how he yes. died. Do you find that people ask that for a particular reason and is there stigma attached to how he died? I didn't have a clear cause of death until about two weeks ago. Okay. Um and so that's part of why I was hesitant to say how he died because I still didn't even very, very much know. Gotcha. But it's also an extremely traumatic event for me. Yeah. I woke up next to my husband having a seizure in bed. I called the paramedics. They arrived. He was still breathing. I ran to grab them towels because they asked me to. I walked back into the room and they called the code. And I witnessed them starting to try to revive my husband. Right, right there. Yeah. And it's not something I would wish for anyone to see. Yeah. And there are sounds and images that I will have with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I'm working through the post-traumatic stress that I have from that with my therapist. Yeah. So my grief is multi-level because it's not just that my husband died, which is hard enough. It was witnessing all of the things that I did. Yeah. And the more that I talk about it and the more that I try to understand what happened that day, the easier it is to talk about it. Okay. The, the less it feels like I'm just shredding <laughs> this wound open. Um, and so I'm able to work through these things. Yeah. With with a little bit of distance, it's a bit easier. Okay. Um, There's a lot about that day that I don't necessarily remember. Um, Like I, I remember being in the apartment one minute, but then the next minute I'm outside and I don't remember how I got there. Um, So there's some things that even I don't totally understand. My hesitation in explaining it on TikTok is that I can't cram all of that into 60 seconds and make it make sense. (laughs) And I didn't want to do multiple parts. And so I talked about it on my live, which I'm realizing now they don't keep that recorded. So people, as they keep finding me and keep kind of joining what we affectionately call widow talk, that is going to be more and more uh, questions, especially since we're so young. Yeah. It's weird. And I get that. I know it's weird. But I don't know any other people ask that because in, in uh, my mind, they yeah. ask it to create distance. Mm-hmm. Like, 
it's like if a smoker says I have lung cancer, well, did you smoke? Like mm-hmm. I think they do it to create distance to go, okay, well, that, okay, that's not something I'm at risk of. Like why yeah. do you think people are so interested in the cause of death? I think it does have to do with a mental checklist, right? My husband was a bigger guy. And so wives, men who are a little bit bigger, they're usually a bit more curious as to what it was because then you go home and you're like, okay, this happened to this person that I know. I want to get you checked out for this. Um, I don't understand why people ask the question. The best I can come up with is a, a morbid curiosity because we're so young and it doesn't make sense, right? It's not like it was a car crash. He didn't get mugged. It was a natural causes. Um, and so what does that mean for a man who's 33? Um, for someone so young, especially people who are our age, our friends desperately wanted to know. I had one girl message me on Facebook, maybe a week after Jared passed away asking me how he died. They were friends when they were kids, but they haven't talked in 10 years. And I got very upset at the question Yeah, because I don't know you. Yeah. <laughs> so what does it matter to you how he passed it? Like, and for me yeah. to have to relive it is traumatic. I think it's a morbid curiosity. People want to know it. Why do we watch Dateline? Why do we watch all of these murder mystery shows? I think there's a bit of a morbid curiosity amongst yeah. people uh, which is interesting, right? Because they don't want to be there for the big emotions with grief. They don't want to deal with all these big emotions that I have, that his parents have. But they're curious to know what happened and they're curious to know how he died. Yeah. Those are facts. Those aren't emotions. Yeah. Facts are easier to deal with than emotions. Yeah. Right? So I think there's this morbid curiosity. They think that they're being empathetic or sympathetic by asking these questions. And I think they ask that question because facts are easier to deal with than emotions. Yeah. And I think also it's attributing blame. If you're able to say he was murdered, you can go, oh, I have someone to get angry at. I have someone to get to blame if it was COVID, if it was. But people have a really, really hard time with um, causes of death that they believe are self-inflicted. So, I mean, you guys look at the COVID mortality in your country People are like, well, they had high blood pressure and they were obese and they're the ones who were going to die anyway. And you're like, um, mm-hmm. what? And so there's a real yeah. stigma around what people perceive as being self-inflicted. Yeah, whereas, there is. Yeah. And that's been hard with Jared's passing because he's a big guy, right? Yeah. He's morbidly obese. And whose fault is it if not his? Yeah. And with Jared, what they failed to realize is he also struggled deeply with clinical depression. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a whole, I mean, we could talk about that forever, getting him diagnosed and all the right things, but he was doing better. So Jared had lost 50 pounds. He was the happiest and the healthiest I'd ever known him to be. And that was evident to everyone who knew him. Yeah. So that was part of the, how it's hard to digest why he died because he was healthier. He was doing all the things his doctor said to do. Yeah. So why did this happen? And 
this is hard because we just have to accept the information we have, even though it doesn't make sense to us. We're not going to get any better answers. This is what we have. And so that's part of digesting the information we have. And in some ways, just letting that be. Yeah. Because again, it's people making it about themselves. Yes. So I have when people- I when I told my mother-in-law what the official cause of death was, she got very angry. Why? I think again the stigma of well, that means it's self-inflicted in a way. Yeah. yeah. That means he could still be here had he only just. Yep. There's that word again. Taken better care of himself. Yeah. There's a huge mental component to it that yeah. I didn't understand. I was 21 when we started dating. What did I know about yeah. anything? <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. Um, and it was only last year that we got a diagnosis and medication and a talk therapist. And he really turned a corner yeah. and he was really taking good care of himself. Yeah. So for him to die now instead yeah. of a year ago, it didn't make sense because he was healthier yeah. than he was in October. Um, and it also puts you in that yeah. position of having to justify. Yeah. Like, and you don't deserve that. You, you in your own right are grieving someone's death. It's not anybody's business really. All that other stuff. And like you said, it is morbid curiosity to make yeah. ourselves feel better. Oh, well, that wouldn't happen to me. Or, oh, he brought, like, And there's a lot of that sort of discussion that makes me really uncomfortable, this whole blame culture of going, Mm -hmm. those people, these people. You're like, "Mm." so then, so then if people are trying to make you feel better or make it go away and they say at least and have you had people give you advice Mm -hmm. on what you should just do? Yes. Um, a lot of it centers around dating a lot of the advice (laughs) I've received a lot of it centers around dating um some of it from some of it from Jared's immediate family um you know some of it as as weird as I, I can't say weird everyone is different in the way that they process grief is different I wish people who've never experienced a loss of their spouse would stop telling me how they would handle it because you don't know uh, how you would actually handle it. Yeah. Or that they couldn't handle it. Um, The implication there when people tell me how strong I am, it makes me feel like you're questioning how much I love my husband Uh, because I'm not devastated enough. You think (gasps) I don't love him enough. And that's not what they're saying, but that's how it feels when someone's like, wow, you're doing so great for how, how short of a time it's been. I'm hearing you don't look like you're grieving the way I think you're supposed to. So you must not have loved him. And anyone who knows Jared and I knows that is not the case. I've somehow fallen more in love with him since he passed. I didn't think that was possible. Just hearing stories about his kindness and his goodness and his jokes. 
Yeah. I've fallen more in love with him since he's passed even. So I, I hate that. But most of the advice I've received is around dating because 10 years ago when him and I started dating, like apps weren't a thing. Like if you met someone online, it was still kind of like hush, hush, you know, wasn't yeah. widely accepted. So I've had people say, you know, um, I would start looking for a wife again after three months. I know I couldn't be alone. Hey, at least you are self-aware enough to know that that's, that's something. Um, it was insinuated to me that it would be years before I would be ready to date again, which again, I think people mean well, but what I'm hearing is if I start dating earlier than you think I should, you're going to take that to mean I didn't love my husband. If I take too long to date, you're going to look at me as damaged goods and that I'm not capable of moving on. Um, or people look at uh, Steve Irwin's wife. Hi. And I've seen a post going around about her recently about, you know, how she said she's had her, her happily ever after. She's never been on, on a date since Steve died. And I think that's fine. If that is her choice to do, there's no shame or blame or anything there with that. Yeah. My issue is when people look at that and they idolize that as that is the epitome of what a grieving widow should do (laughs) that word should like that's how you know it was true love because she could never go on another date does that mean that widows and widowers who do go on to find another companion didn't truly love their husbands and wives no (laughs) that's not what that means but as a widow it feels like that's what you're saying yeah Um, so yes, most of the advice I've gotten has been around dating, when to date, who to date. Oh, you should date a widower because they'll understand. Yeah. Or you should date someone with kids because, you know, I struggled to get pregnant. Um, and guys don't want to be with someone with infertility issues. Um, so most of the advice has been around dating. I have gotten the good old, you should just get hammered. Like, just get a bottle of whiskey and just, you know, if you're having a tough time, like, just do that. Um, Which they didn't know that alcoholism runs on my dad's side of the family. So I'm highly aware that that's not what I'm going to be doing. (laughs) But again, people don't know what they don't know. But the advice that I've gotten from people not who are other widows, widowers, or from my grief counselor is just... (laughs) Yeah. It's a little ridiculous, yeah. um, but it's mostly centered around dating. And I found that okay. very interesting because I don't know if that's true for widowers or for mm-hmm. widows and widowers who are older, or if it's just because I'm so young that that's what most of the advice is about. Yeah. Wow. What yeah, about weird, weird. weird compliments? Like grief looks good on you. <laughs> oh that? my <laughs> gosh. You saw that one comment, right? Um, yeah. That poor woman was told that grief looked good on her at her father's oh. funeral. And people have complimented me on how I look since Jared passed away um, because I've lost weight because part of the grief cycle is you don't eat because everything tastes eat. like dirt. Everything tastes like dirt. And so you don't want to eat. So you're losing weight. And when you lose weight and you're a bigger girl, people are like, you look amazing. <laughs> Nobody's going, you might be in trouble. Are you eating? They're going, you look so good. If I were thin, they'd be like, you need to eat. But because I'm a bigger girl, it's, oh, you look great. 
I had that with postnatal depression where I lost 15 kilos. And everybody's like, you look amazing. I'm like, oh my God. there's nothing. Here. There's nothing to me. <sighs> like I'm hungry all the time, but I cannot keep food down. This yeah. is not. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. I just started making people uncomfortable and I called it grief chic. <laughs> Can't recommend it. Someone else um, agreed on TikTok, right? They're like, yeah, I called it the dead husband diet. Yeah. Made people uncomfortable, but they eventually stopped commenting on my weight. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Someone and else said, next time you should just say you just lost 325 pounds. <laughs> How much, Jerry? Weighed? Oh, my God. So, <laughs> so, okay, let's go humor for a second. How is humor <laughs> helping you? Because I love it. I love it. Because Oh, to, thank you. <laughs> to me, oh. There was one that you did the other day and I wept. I just went, oh, my God. Dating's not so scary when you stop to consider. No man will be able to ghost me the way my husband already has. Oh, I wept. I just went, oh, my God. So how, yeah. how does humor sort of sit? Like are there are people who don't, who just, it's in their face, yeah. they don't like it or they feel they guilty like for it. laughing. or. So specifically for me, Jared's the kind of man who made me laugh for my soul. Okay. There are so many pictures of us together where he, I'm just laughing, mouth open, eyes shut, just laughing from my very core. Yeah. And for a long time, which I realize four months doesn't sound like a long time, but it's been agony and ages for me. I spent a long time just raw pain, crying, just if I could have ripped my flesh open and let my soul escape, I would have done that just in pain. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I missed laughing. I just wanted the endorphins. I wanted to feel good again. Yeah. Um, and Jared's the kind of man that loved dark humor. Yeah. And so I knew for me, being able to make a joke not only would make me feel better, but it's a way that I honor him and I honor our life together. And there's a lot of people that are uncomfortable with it. Yeah. Um, but again, on TikTok, we found this community of other widows and widowers who they get it because we're tired. We're tired of crying. We're tired of being in so much pain. And I yeah. realize nobody's going to feel comfortable making a joke Yeah. because I walk in the room and it's, oh, Ooh. how are you? Stop it. It's not the question. It's the face and the tone <laughs> that says I am breakable and I am broken. I am not broken. I am capable. Yeah. I am hurting and I am in pain, but I am not a broken person. I am a whole person who is just in pain. Yeah. So if I'm not broken, you don't need to fix me. Yeah. Right. Um, so laughter is the best medicine. You get endorphins. You, you show people it's okay to laugh. It's okay to make jokes. They stop treating you like this fragile thing that's going to break if they breathe wrong, which sometimes I still bust out crying. And you know what? It's just part of my life now. And I know that makes people uncomfortable, but if we can laugh about it later, or if we can get to a place where we're laughing, it just, it feels good. And nobody's getting hurt 
you know, um, Jared's not churning in his urn. <laughs> but it's not well, he's cremated, so he can't turn in his grave. Yeah. Yeah. I think with that as well, like if if the grieving person, let them set the tone. Yeah. Like if they, don't make jokes if they're in a bad place and go, hey, I'm gonna try and cheer you up. Read the like, room. <laughs> Read the room. I have said if I'm the one making the joke, if I said it, it's okay to laugh. Yeah. And if I break the ice by making a joke, take a breath. You are welcome to join me in trying to find some humor in in this pain. Especially yeah. if you knew Jared. Like if you're his friends um, or his family and like you knew him, like tell me a story about him doing something utterly ridiculous. I think I've heard all the stories, but maybe I haven't. And even if I have, I want to hear that story again. Yeah. I love talking about him and I love hearing stories about him. It doesn't hurt me to hear these things. When we talk about him, he's still alive to me. Yeah. And that yeah. feels great. And I love being around people who love him. Again, some people don't feel that way, but I, I do. And I think that's that circle that we mentioned before we started recording, that yeah. circle of influence is when you have somebody at the centre who is grieving or who's vulnerable, you grieve inwards. So you grieve yes. inwards. So everything is about you and Jared and yes. about you. And you grieve inwards in the sense that you don't, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, but do a lot of people start talking about their experience and the people that they've lost and they start sort of grieving outwards and make themselves? They start talking about themselves yes. and what they've lost? Yes, they do, or that their grandmother lost her spouse early or they had this friend who went through something similar Um or maybe that their mom lost their dad. So, and I know that that's probably people trying to connect um, because they're uncomfortable with, again, the big emotions. So that's them offering facts yeah. as, yeah. as a, as a filler for a conversation. Um, but then it doesn't become about Jared and it doesn't become about the situation that we're dealing with or my grief and pain. And it becomes about you or this other person instead. Yeah. And so I'm left in that moment going, okay, yeah, that's terrible. Um, yeah. And I kind of mentioned that a little bit on TikTok. And one of the responses I got was someone who said, um, well, you should just be grateful that they're talking to you at all instead of complaining. Oh. And I because went, so during my worst time, I'm supposed to have, more emotional intelligence and poison etiquette than the person who's not experiencing this traumatic loss. Yeah. I should yeah. just be grateful that they're not avoiding me entirely because it's uncomfortable. <laughs> we have to we, do better. Like, yeah. And that's why we talk about it. Because we're not discounting their experience. We're not saying no. that this is not a competition. It's not that your pain is more important than their pain. It's not more valuable. It's just, in this moment, like you said, read the room. In this moment, you have a person who is vulnerable, who needs mm -hmm. to feel heard, valued, and visible. Yeah. Telling them facts 
facts and stories about other people in a way to connect. And yes, it it makes sense when you look at it at the face of it going, well, I've experienced it too, therefore we are kindred spirits. No, 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 you've missed the point. That might come down the track, but you've missed the point of Tiff is in pain. It's not more important than your pain, but if you don't get this right, you will make her pain worse. Yes. And people mean well. And when I don't preface my TikTok videos with, I know people mean well and they come from a good place, people get very up in arms. Yeah. Because, well, their intentions are good. But the end result is pain on my part. So your intention is a moot point because the consequences of your actions are not good. And that doesn't make you a bad person. We do the best we can with the knowledge we have, but once we know better, we need to do better. But if you're rejecting feedback or if you're rejecting this knowledge, then you're choosing to remain ignorant and you're choosing to continue to hurt these people in your life. Yeah. Well, hundred percent. So what is it, Tiff, that you want and you need for the millions of listeners that we have? (laughs) What is it that you want and you need and what in your mind can people do better? I would love for there to just be more of an open dialogue. I would love for people to approach the people in their life who are grieving with more actionable things like we talked about earlier. Don't ask them to let you know when they need something. Be specific in what you're offering, what you can offer. Still protect yourself, set your own boundaries. But if you're truly wanting to help, make it an actionable thing and realize that grief happens over a long period of time. So the amount of support and food offerings that you get immediately following the loss is extremely high, but the need is high for a long time, but the offering drops off very quickly because everybody else goes on with their life. Yeah. They get to compartmentalize that their brother is gone or that their friend is gone because they have already patted themselves on the back. They went, good job. You were a good friend to your friend's widow. And they get to move on with their life because things get busy. Um, So I'd love for the conversation to continue. And if you don't know what to say, I invite you to just say nothing. Say that. Or say that. I don't know what to say. Or say, I don't know what to say. That's fine. There's nothing you can say. Offer a hug. And you you can certainly sit with someone in their silence. You don't have to be in pain in order to just sit there and to be a physical presence, whether someone wants to talk or not talk. I have had many occasions where someone just sat with me. They didn't say anything because they know there's nothing to say. And we just sat and we watched the water. And that was nice because they didn't hurt me (laughs) with their words. Exactly. They comforted me with their actions and I knew that that meant they were a safe place. So I would love to see more of that. And if you are far away, you can't do an action. There's so many other things that you can do. Just listen. Not everything requires a response. It's taking that pressure off yourself to respond as well. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to respond. I'm listening. I'm here for you. I wish I could do more. 
Um, mm-hmm. and, but I think for the people as well, we have to give them permission that, well, I mean, you've said it is the long game. They are allowed to take care of themselves as well. Like if, if, if what you're, like if they're feeling emotionally burdened by what it is that you're putting out there, let's say, or they're just giving and giving and giving, that's not empathy. I need people no. to remember that that's not empathy because you have to take care of yourself. So you need your own support so that you can be a better friend to Tiff, so that you can be a yeah. better support person. That That is then a like a two-way street of self-care, self-love, because then you can show up better for people. Yes, absolutely. And right now I know I'm a terrible friend in the sense that I don't have anything to give to others. I have some friends who are going through a very messy divorce and I would love to be able to be there for her, but I can't. I don't have in me the ability to just be there. And so, and this is someone who was there for me immediately following Jared's passing. And so there's a little bit of guilt associated with that, right? She was there for me. Why can't I be there for her? Yeah. It's because I don't have anything to give right now. So I'm creating that space and distance. Yeah. She because knows that. I have to, she knows that. Yeah. I have and to protect myself. Yeah. I'm here if she wants, if she needs somebody to just sit with her in silence, I am capable of doing that. Yeah. But I can't be the person she calls um, and emotionally and emotionally kind of vomits on. Because yeah. I don't have the strength right now to protect myself from that without feeling all of it with her. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask um, something that rubs me the wrong way that people say a lot, and I feel like it's a a lazy answer, and correct me if I'm wrong. I hate when people say, I'm sorry, unless they messed up. If you messed up, you say you're sorry. Yeah. Um, but people who go, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I'm so like to me when people say mm-hmm. it to me it feels distancing. Like I'm sorry that happened to you. Thank God it didn't happen to me. Like is is does it feel that way? Like I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Cuz I try not mm-hmm. to say it because to me it feels <sighs> of all the things that people say, it doesn't hurt me that they say it. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. And so it's more of a neutral thing. I think they are truly sorry that he's gone and that it happened. And so for me, it's not, yeah, it's maybe a bit of a lazy answer, but again, if people don't know what to say, it's better. And they're not doing the introspection to know, to say that they don't know what to say. Yeah. I'm sorry is much better than God had a better plan or. Yeah. Yeah. He needed another flower or something. Yeah. Because I, I tend to go for the sort of, whoa, that's that's awful. That's awful yeah. sending you love. Like, yeah. Because to me, that's that's not about me. Yeah, like, I see what you're saying. I, I'm a pathological apologizer. <laughs> so I apologize for things that aren't even my fault. I realize that's like, uh, what do they call it? Like the fawn response. Um, yeah but I'm a pathological apologizer. And so I find it hard to fault people for being like, who, who say, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. Yeah. 
I, yeah. I can appreciate where they're coming from and it still happened to me. I know they're sorry that it happened. And so I see what you mean by it's about them. Yeah. Um, and I can see the subtle difference between I'm sorry versus that is so terrible. And that is so awful. Um, yeah. I see that subtle difference there, but it yeah. doesn't upset me, but I can see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause to me, the, the, I'm sorry is this, the sympathy get out of jail free. <laughs> I don't have to say yeah. anything after that. I don't have to be around after that, but that's just how I, that's how I take it. That's how I read it. Um, yeah. And like we said, everybody's different. But Everyone is different. I think the the takeaways as well is to watch watch your language, realise that they have con- consequences, but words like at least should just dismissing, hierarchical, um, distancing, pushing, to me they're like, well, you should just talk to a counsellor. You should just have a drink. You should just, I don't know. Go yeah. back to work, like whatever that is that they yeah, say. Yeah, you I just don't. need you just need to go back to work. Yeah, like it's just that easy. Like it's just that easy. Um, I do. I'm a huge proponent of of therapy and and having a counselor. I've had one since day one, essentially, and I've talked with other widows and widowers who never went to therapy. And I think there is a big benefit to seeking out a counselor. At the very least, it's someone that I can talk to very openly and plainly and who can give me unbiased feedback to help me process my emotions. Yeah. 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 And you don't have to navigate that relationship of their feelings and all that sort of stuff as well. Yeah. No, I'm paying him. So. (laughs) And I think people need to remember as well that they don't need to have been through this in order to empathize with you. They they don't need to go, well, I've never lost a spouse. I've never lost anybody. I've never experienced grief. That's not what the person needs. They don't need to know that you're in the hole with them. Exactly. They just need to know that you're with them, that they are loved, they are valued, they are still human, they are still themselves, they are still wonderful and lovable and yeah, whole. not. And absolutely, absolutely. I'm still whole, even though I feel like a part of my soul is missing. Like, I'm not a a piece of china that you need to glue back together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Love me enough to let me feel the bad feelings that I'm having. Yeah. It's totally normal. And, you know, the people who have helped me the most are not other widows in my real life, they have spouses that are still very much alive (laughs) Um, and kids and jobs. So the people who've helped me the most in real life have not experienced what I'm going through. Yeah. Can I just say, I think you're, I think you're amazing. I think you wear grief well. Um, No. (laughs) (laughs) I got it in black. (laughs) I'm so, I'm, like I was in tears before. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that you've given me an like your time. I'm so grateful that you've shared so much with me. I just appreciate. Oh, I just appreciate you so much taking taking this time, sharing your story, being vulnerable with me. And I mean, you don't know me from a bar of soap, um, but I definitely think that. This is a conversation that needs to get out there and you don't 
It doesn't need to be niched. It doesn't need to. Right. If you have ears, and especially at this time when people, and I know it's not to take away from anything, but people are allowed to grieve anything. I mean, you're you're in the you're in the tornado of it. You've lost your spouse, but people are grieving all sorts of stuff at the moment, and yeah. they're allowed to feel that. You're allowed to yeah. feel grief without feeling broken or needing to be fixed. You're allowed to grieve a job or a loved one, yes. or a reality that was, that is no longer. Yes, um, absolutely. Part of my grief, specifically for me, isn't just that I lost my spouse. I lost the life that we spent 10 years building together. Yeah. I lost our home in Washington State. We were supposed to close on a house the day that he passed away. Yep. So <laughs> I lost that future. I lost the family we were trying to have. So a big part of my grief isn't just this human being that I lost. It's the entire life that I lost. Yeah. And before I lost him, I lost my dream job. I was grieving that. And I know yeah. a lot of people who are grieving the world we thought we lived in. Yeah. And there is real human casualty with what we're dealing with in this world. COVID has taken so many people. I know in the U.S. we've surpassed 200,000. And so that's 200,000 people. That's millions of people who are grieving those 200,000. Yeah. We are all grieving. And yeah. so let's talk about it. Yeah. And it's our responsibility as those who potentially aren't grieving to make the ones who are grieving feel safe, to give them yeah. space, to give them love, to not make their suitcase heavier, to not make their experience worse by giving them our crap to carry as well. Yeah. And yeah and so yeah I just I just think this is so useful for so many people and I hope that they listen today with an open heart and self-reflect on how they can do better to make those around them feel loved and valued and visible no matter what they're going through and yours is just so acute and so raw yeah. and you're and I love the stuff that you're doing on TikTok I think yeah thank you thank wonderful. you so much I'm so like touch that you reached out to me it yeah I I had no idea it's been two weeks today since I posted the statistics that Dr. Wilson gave me um and that video has had like 40,000 likes on it which blows my mind yeah and I think that's how you found me even um, I think it was that video yeah yeah it blows my yeah. mind I think TikTok is great <laughs> Yeah. Because we have all of these sub communities, like the yeah. grief and support and widow. Um, but a lot of people have reached out to me on there that aren't widows, but they've lost, they've experienced great loss. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, you're amazing. Thank you so much, Tiff. Thank you so much for talking to us, Tiff. Oh, that was so beautiful. I think it's really important to take away expectations with grief, expectations of how people should be reacting or what they should do or how they should feel and expectations of ourselves to be useful, to get it right. It's just to sit and listen and make the person feel heard and valued. If you'd like to find Tiff on TikTok, she's at Tiffy Lynn and I'll put her details below. If you'd like to learn more about empathy with our empathy quizzes and training, please go to empathyfirst.com.au. 
My name's Leanne Butterworth. Thank you so much for joining me for this special episode of the Empathy Podcast. If you would like a fact sheet on how to better communicate with your loved ones while they're grieving, please head to my website, empathyfirst.com.au. We'll see you next time.